Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. I'm going to do my exploration of innovation metrics from every source that I possibly can. Today, that source is Carta, and my guest is Peter Walker. Peter runs the Carta Insights team, which is focused on discovering key narratives across the private market ecosystem. In a former life, he was the head of marketing for the media analytics company Public Relay, and in 2020, led the data visualization team at the COVID tracking project at The Atlantic. He and his wife recently welcomed their corgi puppy Penny into the family and are introducing her to every one of San Francisco's many parks. Peter Walker. Welcome to Austin Next. Jason, thanks so much for having me. Good to be here. All right, so let's start off with, tell us about who Carta is and what they do. Sure thing. So Carta is an equity management platform at its heart, which means that we manage the cap tables for about 38,000 startups uh, at the moment. We also have a ton of adjacent businesses, one dealing with the back office for venture funds, one dealing with Carta Total Compensation, which helps founders figure out what to pay new hires. We've got a tax advisory business, all sorts of things that kind of circle around the jobs to be done for a founder. So Carta is perhaps the most startup-centric company that, that I know of. You know, We're basically a proxy for the startup ecosystem within the US. And that gives us access to a lot of data from all of these startups about all sorts of things. So let's pull that thread then. So given as the proxy, what is the kind of data that you have access to and are able to kind of see what's going on? Yeah, I think it's useful here to break our data sets down into maybe two or three buckets. So the first one, because we have access to the underlying cap table, and when an investment is made in one of these startups, obviously, the net result of that investment is that the cap table changes. So the percentages of ownership update, the new investors added to the cap table, et cetera, et cetera. That gives us really fantastic data on valuations, fundraising sizes, the velocity of fundraising within that population of 38,000 startups or so. And of course, again, because we have access to the underlying cap, we can see things that perhaps other providers can't. Things like side letters, convertibles and safes that are done between primary rounds. We can get really deep into the nuance of how fundraising happens for these startups. So that's the first set of data is fundraising and valuations. The second set is actually everything to do with employees. Uh, when an employee joins their new startup, they're often issued equity through the Carta platform. And so we can track how much they're issued. We can track the vesting schedules. We can track you know, when they leave, how long do they have to exercise that equity. All of these, again, nuanced pieces about employee equity, which is the second part of the data. And then the third part of the data, which is more nascent but growing, is everything around compensation. So beyond the equity values from that initial employee, we can also marry that in with thousands of startups that are using Carta Total Comp that give us access to their salary information. So with that, we get this whole cool world of how much are you paying various engineers in San Francisco versus Austin, for instance, or across the world a really a slightly more nascent data set for us, but an amazing view into what's happening with compensation across startups. Now you said you had about 38,000 startups on the platform. So 
what would you say is the set? Like, obviously, that's not, we talk about it as a proxy. It's not when I think about PitchBook or Deal Room or CB Insights, which try to show, okay, this is the entire set, right? This is how much is funding. What would you say is the percentage that your coverage is? When we last looked at it, something like 55 cents out of every dollar invested into U.S. cap tables in 2022 went to a Carta cap table. So I think if you think about it roughly as half of the ecosystem, that's a good measuring stick, probably more in some areas, less in some others. But that's generally how we think about it internally. Okay. So when we think about half, that's obviously a good proxy when we're thinking about broad scale looking and as a proxy, right? Would you think there is any sort of bias? Is there a bias towards types of companies, sectors, regions? I know you and I have talked offline a little bit when I look at the companies of mine that use Carta, there tends to be a little bit a bias towards quality. Some of my better deals are the ones on Carta and also some of the, some of the bigger ones as well, right? So the, the, the smaller ones are not necessarily. So is that something you're seeing? Yeah, I think there certainly is our heuristics within the data set that might differentiate it from the entire pool of startups. I think if you had asked me this question three or four years ago, the first thing I would have said would have been what you just said, which is startups on Carta tend to be slightly more mature and maybe are joining us at after their first priced equity round. However, we, we did two and a half, three years ago now, essentially right as I was joining the company, Carta Launch is the program, and that's free cap table software for any company that's raised less than a million dollars. So with that program, we're starting to see a lot more companies get on Carta earlier and earlier in their life cycle. And again, because of our access to the cap table, that gives us really cool information on pre-seed funding through safes and all of like the earliest part of the company fundraising journey, which we didn't have before. I do think that there's still probably a bias within Carta data towards the Valley and New York as both they're the biggest hubs of venture in the country, obviously, but I do think that they were also quicker to adopt this sort of digital cap tables than perhaps more nascent ecosystems. So that's still probably a heuristic in there, but as far as it goes, I think we capture pretty consistently, you know, close to half majority position of most markets in the US. What about bias towards repeat founders? Because it's only after someone's gone through this, they realize how painful cap table management actually is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, definitely. I think repeat founders are more likely to use Carta. I, it's interesting. The, you know, when Carta was founded over 10 years ago, I think the number one competitor to Carta was Excel spreadsheets, just people managing their cap tables in Excels or in emails or just, you know, not in a very standard format at all. Today, I kind of think that's almost still true. There are still a lot of founders who, as you mentioned, if they're first time founders will just manage the cap table in an Excel sheet. Yes, we've got, we've definitely got more, com it's a more competitive space than it used to be. And there's wonderful companies being built here. Um, but I do think that repeat founders are more likely to use Carta. And then anyone who is engaged with accelerators or their law firms in a serious way, oftentimes those sort of ecosystem players will point them towards Carta as well. I know this is slightly off the top of the bit, but as we're starting to see a lot more kind of software tools and AI tools being integrated into the venture process itself, do you see more of a push for 
things like Carta and the standardization of the, this type of data so that you have the inflow into it so I can actually, because obviously if, if everyone's doing Excel, I'm like, okay, everyone's Excel sheet looks different. How can I actually do my due diligence in a standardized method? I do. There's definitely a push or has been a push, not just necessarily from the AI boom, but for quite a while now to have a standardized cap table, an open cap table format that comes quite honestly from the law firm side. Oftentimes there's a push to standardize those so that it's easier to ingest new clients and kind of people are working from the same templates, essentially. I don't think that we are fully standardized yet. I do think that it's much, much easier to understand a venture document than it used to be. And I would imagine that Gen AI is only going to make that easier. You know, we, we're aware of, and we're looking at internally a number of startups and some cool projects at Carta that, you know, go into the idea of using uh, AI to analyze term sheets, for instance, or analyze deal documents that can pluck out the relevant pieces and say, hey, this is in market or this is out of market. So I'm sure there's going to be a ton of cool new stuff coming out on that. Cool. So the origin of this conversation is we're halfway through 2023. I want to kind of start at kind of the big picture and we kind of set the stage of how we should be looking at the data that, you know, and the biases that are in there. What are the biggest trends you're seeing so far in the first half of 23? So, you know, the first half of this year is perhaps the most challenging fundraising environment we've seen for startups since uh, probably 2008. You know, Carta was founded in 2013 and our data got probably reasonable enough to say something about the whole market in 2015 or so. So it's the worst funding environment we've seen since 2015 on an activity level. I think that's probably not too shocking to the audience. You know, everyone's seen the headlines about the decline of venture. I will say that it hasn't been an, in, you know, a complete freezing of the whole market. There are deals being done. There's a lot of excitement about AI and other sectors. What's happened is that a lot of the companies that raised in 2020 and early 2021 are now contemplating their next fundraise and they're finding that market so vastly different from the market that they raised at before that there, there has been necessitated all these conversations around valuation. So, you know, down rounds on Carta make up about one in five rounds right now, which is definitely the highest percentage we've seen in the last five, six years. And then bridge rounds. So going back to your investors and, you know, talking to them about, hey, can we get an extension? Can we get a little bit more cash so we can make it to our next primary, et cetera? All of those have sort of dominated the conversation such that new primary rounds are just happening way less frequently. So that, that's the biggest trend is that if you're a founder right now, I don't need to tell you that it's really hard to fundraise. So when you're speaking on the challenging and seeing the down rounds, it's not necessarily the volume of the deals and the, and the, the amount of funding because... It's just the, the nature of it, because when I, when I look at some of like the, the broader scope data, right, it, it looks like we're going to probably beat, and correct me if I'm wrong, we'll beat like 2019, like amount raised. So I, I'm trying to understand when we, when we think of challenging is like people are still raising money. Yes, they are still raising money. I mean, to put this in context, in Q4 of 2021 on Carta, the collective Carta companies raised about $66 billion. That was the peak. In Q2, they raised about $15.5 So from 66 to 16, call it. A uh, big, big drop. 
in the fourth quarter of 2019, they raised about 18 billion. So we're not far off that 2019 figure. I, there are a lot more startups on Carta than there used to be in 2019. So that probably needs to be normalized a little bit. Um, so it's, it's not like no fundraising is happening. I think the difficulty in the market right now has been the how fast that has changed. So the whiplash from a pretty open, easier fundraising environment to a much more closed and difficult one puts, you know, we say this all the time at Carta, it's a wonderful time to start a company. There's a lot of capital out there that's looking to get into pre-seed, seed, like early, early rounds. It's a very difficult time to grow a company. So if you had already raised your Series A and you're looking to raise your Series B over the next six months, you're candidly in a more difficult place than the new founder who's just trying to raise pre-seed cash right now. And that's not something that's been true over the last, call it, you know, uh, 10 years or so. Right. I, I, I like, I always want to give this distinction between kind of like 2019 and then the 2021, 2022 bubble, right? Because clearly it was a bubble. And as you said, lots of people who raised during that period got valuations, got raises on things that they probably shouldn't have. And when I hear a lot of the kind of, oh, there's no money out there, there's no, like people are raising now. And the question is, should you, as you said, should you have gotten what you got in 21? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe that's why the challenging piece is. And maybe you're, you're back at a more level set environment now, or maybe you actually were able to ride, ride the wave. So it's, and, and to your point, it's probably that whiplash that is causing is like, oh, well, but you just gave me this wonderful thing, you know, 18 months ago. <laughs> right. It's like all about, I, I think the vibes, quote unquote, of the venture ecosystem are driven by that pace of change. Whereas the underlying metrics for the ecosystem don't point to like some sort of dire collapse or anything like that. Like venture is still relatively pretty healthy and it's going to grow over the next couple of years. Like I have no doubt about that. It's just, as you mentioned, the founders that are now dealing with a very different fundraising environment. Some of them, and this is where we see those bridge and down rounds come back in, some of them are, you know, kind of swallowing the pill and saying, okay, we were overvalued. I understand that, but there's still a core business that we want to build here and we're willing to do a recapitalization with current investors. And some of them are not going to get that recap because candidly, perhaps their business only made sense in a zero interest rate environment. There are a bunch of companies that perhaps wouldn't have been funded. I do think it's a little... You know, I have this debate online all the time. People say, well, you're not focusing enough on how few rounds are happening. Being a founder is always difficult. You're, most founders don't end up raising enough money, right? The number one reason for a business to go out of business is they don't have enough cash. So if I look back over this period, five years from now, I bet the percentage of startups that go out of business isn't that much higher than the baseline rate of startups going out of business because you would expect nine out of 10, maybe even higher startups to go out of business if you're looking from pre-seed to IPO. Um, so if, if that's the viewpoint that you're taking, this is more of a blip. But if you're in it right now, it feels really difficult. Well, and I think part of it, not only the zero interest rate environment in 21 and 22, but also what were your assumptions? Like, it just looked like Peloton, right? Oh, everyone is going to be only working from home. Like, that didn't hold true. So... Do, are the assumptions that you raised under in 21 and 22 holding true? And if not, that would be challenging. There are probably a number of companies that raised in 21 and 22 that are raising in 23 at up rounds because 
they made progress. If you raised during that time and you show traction, whether it be revenue, technology, whatever your particular pace is, and you're showing, I had this valuation, I'm showing significant progress on whatever metric you want to use, then you deserve the value increase and you're able to make that case. If it's, oh, well, the world's changed and my assumptions changed, but I want a value increase. And the venture firm is saying, well, no, because you raised under these conditions that was easy money under these assumptions and the world changed. Those assumptions don't hold and it's harder. And likely I've got these companies in front of me that do hold. I think one of the key points there is that not only are the assumptions completely different now than they were 18 months or 24 months ago, basically every one of their portfolio companies is probably coming to them and having that same conversation. So it's not as though they're the only ones that are saying, we need this extension, we need X, Y, or Z in order to refigure our business for this new world. If you've got 25 bets across the portfolio, the VC is probably only going to be able to make the double down bet on, call it three or four of them. So you have to kind of rise to the top there. And perhaps some of those businesses are better suited for this new environment than, than others. And there's going to be a lot of, of businesses that don't make it. I will say that also in some ways applies to venture funds themselves. You know, there was a ton of new venture funds formed in 2020, 2021, et cetera. A lot of emerging managers, which is fantastic, probably helps diversify the space. But I would assume that some of those emerging managers are going to have real difficulty raising a second fund and may or may not be in the VC business by the end of, you know, two years from now. No, 100%. And back to your point on the, I've got 25 companies and only make three bets for doubling down. That's standard. That's the venture power law. The difference is if you're in business that is funding revenue companies, not technology companies, which and I'm not making a distinction, but in that case, if the assumptions are holding, then I may not have to, you know, there's the sustainable, like, great, your revenue is increasing. And I may be having to make those bets at different times. If suddenly I had all these assumptions going in and everything's cratering, well, now suddenly, oh, well, you know, everybody's out of money or just the opposite of my 25 companies, three of them, the assumptions held and they're making revenue and they're growing. Well, kind of showed me which three I need to double down on and which of the 20 I'm not. But that, that's the normal, like we always talk about it. It's, it's the, you want the one home run, it's the three you're going to be the singles and seven are going to, or six are going to die. I can do math. <laughs> yeah. There's that venture economics is, you know, I, you mentioned earlier about repeat founders being on Carta more often. I do think that repeat, one of the ways we think about this internally is how can we make first time founders into repeat founders? And repeat founders really understand that part of the success of their business is predicated on the venture economics of the funds that invest in them. So you have to be that 10x return, or at least you have to be a company that can, can show that progress. And there's just a, a lot, there's too many companies that raised and there's not enough new cash to go around, even though there's all this stories about dry powder on the sidelines. Yes, there is. Like venture funds did raise a ton of money in the last three years. And that money will be deployed eventually. But if they have a, call it three-year time series, timeline to deploy that capital and you need money in the next six months, that doesn't necessarily help you. 
Right. And the reserve ratio may have changed in terms of like, I, I've got more to keep my port co companies alive because I want those to succeed, right? Rather than pulling in new companies. We've been talking a lot in generalities. Are we seeing, and kind of these basic assumptions, are you seeing any variances across stage, sector, uh, in terms of how tough it is? Are there certain sectors they're doing better than others or certain stages that are doing okay? I think the the general wisdom here holds pretty well, which is the stages that are being most impacted are those closest to IPO. So you can think of it like waterfalls through the system. The public markets went down quite a bit, although they popped back up uh, a bit lately. And that impacts to series E, F, D, you know, down back into C, B, A. So the earlier stages are doing relatively better, um, although they're definitely impacted. In terms of sectors, again, I think the prevailing wisdom here is that, you know, Gen AI and AI companies generally are having an easier time raising. That is definitely true. There are a lot of companies. I was actually just going through our list of seed and series A rounds for the last quarter. And it was surprising to me how many companies are no longer .coms, but they are .ais, uh, which is fun. And some of those are just riding the wave. Some of those are truly, you know, probably going to be transformational. That's a sector that's doing relatively better. I would also say there seems to be a consistent investment in the life sciences and biotech sphere uh, in a way that doesn't seem to be quite as impacted as your standard SaaS company, which is pretty cool to see. And then one thing that was kind of heartening is that there was a consistent amount. It didn't didn't go up, but it wasn't a big drop in renewable energy companies that were funded on Cardo over the last, call it, six to nine months. So that's great to see. Maybe I, I think that there is a little bit of a pivot. I don't want to overstate it, but it does seem as though slightly harder, more real world businesses that are dealing with things like biotech, life sciences or energy are garnering a bit more attention from investors than the standard SaaS businesses at the moment. So if that's a shift and there's a better mix of technology only versus people that are building in the real world, I think that's to the good overall. Yeah, one of the things that I've, I've seen, and I kind of say this a lot, what the, the pandemic taught us is that how important the unsexy was. Like you can have an amazing drug and if I can't build it or I can't ship it here, then it doesn't matter. Right. And so you saw companies like resilience come about, you saw, you know, which is biomanufacturing. Bio so we, we started seeing these things or clinical trial companies, you know, it's my particular background in biohealth, but we started seeing about all this kind of supply chain and the, the, the unsexy became sexy, right? We, we really started understanding that these parts, these real world physical pieces were much more important. And I, I expect that for at least a, a bit to be, get a lot more kind of funding. Absolutely. And I think it's, uh, you know, again, I think it's healthy for the ecosystem to sort of rebalance itself towards things that are more challenging and then might take longer to actually realize value than, you know, your next SaaS tool. Although, I will that 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 narrative is being a little bit countervailed right now by the excitement around AI because most of those AI companies are obviously not hardware or other things. I think that will there will be a first wave of excitement around the the next GPTs, et cetera. And then there's there's gonna be a deeper thinking about how AI is infused into all of these businesses. So 
Well, we'll see. I, I'd imagine that that plays itself out a little bit over the rest of the year. And then we kind of, I hope, are in a better place when we exit 2023 into 2024. The thing that I'm looking for is just when our IPO is going to come back on. It's it's almost impossible for late stage venture to return to something like a healthy state without the IPO market being open in some way. So it's it heartening to hear that perhaps, you know, according to some rumors, Stripe might be continuing to think about it in the next, call it six to 12 months. Like Stripe would be, uh, it's underestimated how much of a factor Stripe itself would be just the size of the company, the amount of capital that is invested in that company and would be hopefully, you know, there would be real returns to those funds, et cetera. That would be a big unlock. So, you know, knock on wood, the, the Collison brothers bring us through here. I know there's also been talk for a while about uh, a Starlink IPO too. Yes, which would be fantastic. There, you know, I think the real, <laughs> someone tried to claim Kava, which was a recent IPO as, as a tech IPO. I don't think that quite counts. I wouldn't say that that's, you know, open no. the floodgates. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, but, yeah. not as a tech, but obviously people did well on that. So that's wonderful for that. Kudos. Yeah, for sure. And it's wonderful food too. So, you know, shout out to Kava. Yeah. Delicious. We, we don't really have it in San Francisco, I don't think. And that is, or maybe there's only one, uh, but I used to love it when I lived in DC. I didn't have it until it was here in Austin and didn't realize it was a lunch place, but just, I, I saw Kava and thought Java and still thought it was a coffee place until somebody <laughs> said, Hey, you should meet me there for lunch. I was like, and then I had it and I was like, Oh, this is wonderful. So it's delicious. Uh, yeah. Not a paid sponsor. It's just it's good food. That's right. Yeah. No spawn con here, but yeah. And, and the one thing I will say on the, on the, the gen AI that I think that does make it really interesting as someone who used this chat GPT five, six, seven times a day is one of the things that I found really interesting about that, even on the sense of just your point that it is all digital, is where I make the difference and found it different than, say, crypto or meta, where we saw these, you know, these constant pushes about, you know, these are the next big things, these are, these are big and these are coming. One, how quickly I saw people paying for actual product and solution revenue, myself included. I'm a ChatGPT Pro user, so I was putting it out and just the also and then the pushback of hey slow down so not a we're, we're going to use this and how you know this but like that so those two things tell you this is actually real and transformational technology if if that's the uh, if people are willing to pay to use it and people are saying slow down that is much more transformational even if you point it's not in the physical space but i think that use case in the physical space is coming really quickly. Absolutely. There's, it's a, I use it consistently as well. You know, as a data analyst, <clears throat> I've also started getting into using it at, uh, as the code interpreter, which is one of the plugins. And it's pretty wild, you know, that I can ask it questions of my data and it's going to respond with charts and graphs and things I didn't think of and interesting ways to think about the information that we have access to. It's a real wave. The question really, I think, on the startup side is which of these businesses will, uh, you know, there's, there's already talk of it. Like if you infuse AI into most of these businesses, then the differentiator cannot be itself AI. It needs to be the same thing that it's usually been, which is how are you solving problems for customers? What's your distribution? Like all of those still, things still really matter. It's just a question of how does that change in the AI world? And it's 
we'll we'll find that out over the next say call it 12 18 months but there is there is a ton a ton of of startups that are trying to figure out how to integrate we're doing it at carta how do we how do we integrate ai into our workflows and things like that well i mean this is a comment that i've made before i don't think i've made this line what do you call an ai pharma company in five years yeah it's just a pharma company right exactly <laughs> yeah <laughs> we, don't, we don't we don't call it high throughput pharma company like it, it becomes base technology now now you might have innovation technology, and, and I find it really interesting, like with, with some of the things, the tools that are being done out there, it might be where the value shifts is there's some really interesting stuff, I think, coming. So yeah, can keep, I think, going in, into that direction, but I, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about Austin and how we're, you know, how we're doing. So, um, and I really appreciate, you know, you, you pulled and, and looked at a lot of different numbers, but I want to I set the stage a little bit. So... PitchBook has us as sixth in the country with 2.2 billion. Your data has us at 900 million at seventh. So that kind of shows, you know, roughly the same. You know, you talked about about 50% uh, by my rough numbers. That's a little bit lower, I think, than your tradition, than what you're getting in other regions. But it kind of gives at least that, okay, we're kind of in the same ballpark. Kind of first question any thoughts on why Carta might be underrepresented in Austin versus other regions? It's a good question. I don't know necessarily that we are. It may have to do with the aggregation. You know, we're using Austin, uh, or when, when I put this data together, I was using Metropolitan Statistical Areas, MSAs. So there's probably some stuff in our data where the MSAs are unknown or things like that. Maybe that's leaving a few companies off. I do think that. If we had looked, the time period that we're talking about here is just basically the first two quarters of 2023. If we had looked in back, you know, through the last, call it two years, maybe that number normalizes a little bit. So I don't really have a good answer for you as to why we're make a little bit underrepresented there, but I, I doubt it's like too big of an issue. Yeah, and it's a few percent. So like as I said, it fits enough that I feel good about it. I was more just curious if there was any particular reason. So when we first talk about it, I want to talk about what does Austin kind of look like today when we think about kind of the startup funnel, the pre-seed, the seed, you know, the Series A. How does that funnel look like to you? Yeah, so if we take a look at the number of companies in Austin that are using Carta as their cap table provider, you've got close to 400, called 380 pre-seed companies. And pre-seed our definition of pre-seed, which I know is not always everyone else's definition, is just any company that has yet to raise a price equity round. So they, these companies may have raised a considerable amount of money on safes or convertible notes, but they haven't raised any priced equity from an institutional VC. So they, they still qualify as pre-seed for us. Uh, and then seed at 175 and series A at 174. Those, those two stages, by the way, seed and series A, across our database are very, very close together most of the time. Sometimes that's because a company will skip seed and go directly to series A as their first price round. Uh, and sometimes it's just literally like naming nomenclature in the funding docs. I think the pipeline in Austin makes a lot of sense. You know, you'd expect the majority uh, or a much higher percentage of companies to be in pre-seed and seed at early stages. And then the funnel dramatically narrows as you get to B, C, D, and really late stage pre-IPO companies. Um, and that's that's the pattern that we see everywhere across the US. And it's partly why actually, if you look at 
you know, there's a there's a question of comparing Austin or other regions to Silicon Valley. If you look only at pre-seed or seed companies, there's a lot of places around the states that have a good number of those companies. But if you look at Series C and beyond, the real late stage companies, that still lives in Silicon Valley because of the advantage that they've had in terms of time and ecosystem, et cetera. So that's where the the difference usually comes in when you're talking about growths and venture ecosystems. Yeah, I think that was one of the big shifts that I've seen why our numbers have started to grow on the venture dollars is that we're starting to get those B, C, D, and E rounds. And I think that's that's the big shift. What I want to think about, though, to have a thriving and superstar is you have to have that that funnel right in the top of the funnel. So if my math kind of works out, we have kind of a, you know, 2x pre-seed to seed kind of ratio what's your thought? Is that's what's needed? Do you need like a 5X? What is a kind of a healthy funnel? It's a good question. I don't have an exact idea of how that looks in various ecosystems. I would say probably 2X is a minimum bound there. If you think about, you know, I was just looking at uh, some extra data the other day. If we just go back to 2019 for a moment and we say, all right, we took all of the companies that raised a seed round in 2019, a priced equity seed round on Carta. It's over, you know, close to 2,000 companies or something. If you look today in the middle of 2023, how many of those companies actually made it beyond that seed round? About 50% of them never made it past seed. And about 85% of them have only made it to A, so seed or A. So you lose, like this funnel constricts very tightly. It's, I think it's well known that you know, most startups fail, but I think it's less well known that most startups fail early. Most startups will not make it to even an A round as a funding benchmark. Once you get to A, the failure rate is actually modulates a little bit and you're more likely to make it to B, et cetera. So I do think that 2X is probably on the lower end and you'd want to see more pre-seed companies. Maybe maybe that's where our data is a little bit mismatched here. Maybe it is more like a 3X and we're just not capturing those companies early enough on the platform. It's questions of both directions. Is it Carta or is it we need more pre-seed and we need to fill that funnel? And it's also a question on the, uh, a, is there the sunk cost fallacy on the reason that Series A and beyond survive longer, right? So it's the, maybe they should be being, uh, have the, the losses cut because uh, you know they're doing that. But that's an interesting and be curious to see those numbers as they continue to grow. How do you think Austin is faring as we were talking earlier kind of about that, you know, the 2021, 22 bubble and where it's going, and but then also kind of normalizing going back to saying, okay, let's look at 2019 because we all, we've said like 2021 and 22 was a bubble. Yeah. I think Austin's doing quite well. Austin, if you look at what's called the bubble time period, late 2020 into early 2021, and then the beginning of 2022 before some of the declines had really had really taken root. I think Austin was one of the fastest growing ecosystems in our data in 2019. So as you mentioned, we have it as uh, seventh on, if you just do it on metropolitan statistical areas, for capital invested through Carta for the first half of 2023. I think if we did that same analysis for 2020 or 2021, it would be just about the same, probably maybe seventh or sixth, uh, depending on if you aggregate the Bay Area together. So Austin's doing well, holding its own, and total investment in Austin 
as a percentage change from the peak, you know, first, second quarter or so of 2022 is down 65%, but that's right in line with how it's down everywhere else. You know, it's down 70% in San Francisco, it's down 75% in Seattle. So everyone's gone through this bubble together. And I don't think, I think Austin as an ecosystem has sort of established itself in, I don't know how you would want to tier it, maybe in that second tier of, you know, established venture markets. And then the question is, how do you get from established to superstar? Yeah. And, 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 you know, when I look at the kind of the data, you know, if I see here 2019 first half for, you know, on Carta was a hundred million dollars and then 2023, we're at a billion. So we're already ahead of 19 and I expect us to be in what would I see? And I had run a, uh, an analysis on PitchBook and it posted it online. What was interesting to me is that there was a few cities that seemed to be trending ahead of 2019. So if you ignored the bubble, right, and just said, where do we post versus that? And it was us, DC, which I found interesting, Silicon Valley and Boston. So clearly some of the momentum was sustained through the bubble and that it was an inflection point, right? Everyone's down because it's down, right? That it was kind of artificially inflated for a, new, a number of reasons, but there kind of was like a new baseline that was set. And then when things get back to normal, I expect us to be more back up into that five, six, seven numbers. And as you said, kind of, there might be in this kind of new set of tiers. So I think that'll be really, really interesting. And again, as you mentioned, if you just took this data set exactly as it is and segmented it by stage, some of these places would fall off or do better. You know, if you're looking from Series B and beyond, you know, in our list, some places like Portland and Seattle and San Diego and DC, they would fall off the list a little bit in a way that I think Austin is starting to tip into having enough of a track record as an ecosystem that it has those late stage companies, which, as you mentioned, if you have a late stage round that's $50 million, you need 50 early stage rounds of a million bucks each to, to equal that total capital. So if you had done this by rounds raised instead of capital, the picture might be slightly different. Yeah, that is interesting is, yeah, you're raised per round and having those and, and also at a very different level. I remember being, I, I saw this like yesterday or two days ago, just understanding the scale number where it's like, yeah, we raised, you know, 2 billion. And then somebody wrote something about Boston and they're like, yeah, in the last two weeks we raised... 25 companies raised $540 million. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> like that is just yeah. an entirely different scale when you're talking about that. So we were thinking about like more of the macro level here, obviously uh, with the total numbers, but how are things holding up in terms of like at the valuation level? We talk about it's a really tough funding environment, but how is Austin holding up in terms of uh, funding? Yeah, so if we just take a look at valuations, Austin's doing pretty well. Austin, you know, for the second quarter of 2023, for a priced equity seed round, the median valuation on Austin is about 15 million, 50.3 million. That compares very favorably to what it is in LA, which is 15 million. Uh, it's actually a little bit higher than it is in San Francisco at 13.8. So, you know, valuations, I think that there are, investors are willing for the companies that they really believe in to, you know, give decent round sizes and, and robust valuations for those companies. It's just, again, when we talk about vibes, the vibes are driven obviously by deal activity more than they are about the valuations of the companies that actually end up raising. So it's, there's just fewer and fewer rounds happening. So the companies, 
as you would probably expect, the ones that are actually getting the rounds done are probably the top quality companies. And so therefore the valuations for those companies haven't fallen that much. That's what I was going to say is wouldn't we expect in this environment valuations to actually rise because it's just going to be the better companies that are getting it. So you would expect that. And that is what we see, especially at the early stages. I will say that sort of paradigm doesn't click into place immediately. So for 2022, valuations in most venture stages were falling. And the reason was they're like, you know, you're trying to catch the knife. Like, where is the right? There's so many companies that raise at excessive levels. Like, where is the right level? And now I think we've kind of hit the plateau and are starting to bounce back up, but at a lower round volume. So investors have seemed to kind of find the level at which they're comfortable for the top quartile or so of companies to raise at at seed and series A, series B. And I don't expect that valuations will do another nosedive. Uh, the, the question remaining for the rest of the year is, you know, how many more rounds will actually be included at the valuations levels that they're at now? Okay, what about for the people who raise during the bubble? How are they faring? How are we seeing in terms of, you know, bridge rounds and the like? Are they, are they having issues or what's going on there? They're having issues across the board, not just in Austin, but, uh, you know, across the U.S., so for, from our data, about three in every four Series A rounds in Austin were, were bridge rounds in Q2. Uh, that's well above the percentage. Can we define a bridge round, being very specific here, how you define it? For sure. Yeah. So our definition of a bridge round is any price equity round that happens in the same named series as the primary. So to break that down a bit, if you are a founder and you've raised your Series A round from new investors, that's your primary Series A, and you may end up having to go back to those investors, maybe a couple new ones, but, but typically those same investors, and say, hey, we're going to need more capital in order to achieve the goals that we need to raise a Series B. Can we raise a Series A extension? So sometimes these are named like Series A2, Series A3, et cetera, where the valuation can either remain unchanged or maybe it bumps up just a little bit and there's more cash and then the investor holds more equity. That extension is also known as a bridge round. Um, sometimes people will refer to bridge rounds for any sort of financing that happens in between primaries. That includes stuff like safes and convertible notes. That's not what we're talking about in this data set. It's just new priced equity rounds that happen to be in the same alphabet stage as the primary. You said nearly three or four of in the, in the Series A. So how does that compare with other regions? It's a little bit higher, but there's some variance. It bounces around in those numbers. Typically, you know, for San Francisco, for instance, 44% of the Series A rounds that we saw in Q2 were bridge rounds. In New York, it was 56%. I think that if you just ignore the exact percentages for now, but just the general trend is more and more Series A rounds across all of these ecosystems are bridge rounds rather than new primary rounds. And that gets back to some of the stuff we were talking about earlier. Everything is coming due of the last year and a half, right? The bill is now here, yeah. And all of these companies are going back to their initial investors and saying, we don't think that we're going to be able to hit the milestones we need to in order to convince someone to give us a Series B. So we need to have a discussion with you, current investor, about raising a Series A extension or a Series A bridge. And everyone's doing it basically at the same time. And that results in more time and attention being spent on these bridge rounds. 
and less time and less capital being spent on new primary rounds. So are you seeing both from Austin and a macro in given the timing of kind of the capital that was raised in 21 and 22, is 23 really this kind of transition year Do we in kind of working through all of that? And 24 will have gotten through the companies that aren't going to raise or going to then and get through the bridges will have gone away. We'll get the new and 24 will kind of reset the table or if we hit bottom, like what are you kind of expecting with that? It's an interesting guesstimate really, because if you're just working from the standard venture math, you would say, okay, anyone who's raising in Q1 of 23 probably raised in Q1 of 21, two year, 18 months, two years ago, essentially. And therefore, we would expect this sort of expansive bridge round stuff to work its way through the system in the next quarter or so, and then kind of back to more normal stuff in 2024. However, it's not as though those startups that raised in 21 have been just sitting there idly. You know, they've almost certainly, they've laid off staff, they've redone, they've refocused on revenue. They, they've made changes to the business to give them more runway. So it may be that those changes themselves extend these companies' life cycles, but they don't actually make them viable companies. So there's going to be some percentage of zombie companies that stick around and maybe this elevated sense of bridges extends through the rest of the year and possibly into Q1 of 24. You know, we are seeing companies bite the bullet in terms of taking a down round. And that's really an admission like, hey, we were overvalued and we understand that. And then of course, there are a number of companies that are shutting down. And the number of companies shutting down as an absolute figure is rising as a percentage of all startups, I would need to go look at it. I don't think it's rising quite as quickly as people expect. So there's still a lot of companies out there that are, are trying to make it work. The question is, will they be able to pivot their businesses enough to, to get to that next stage? Probably a lot of them won't, but I don't know if Q1 of this year was the end of it or Q2 of this year was the end of it. You, you also wonder those companies that raised in Q1 and Q2 of 2022, so kind of the tail end of the bubble where they got the funding, but may have then seen what was happening and didn't necessarily scale as quickly. So the money's in the bank, yeah. you know, exactly. and basically, okay, oh, we, so let's be, didn't have to go through and cut back and let's be diligent about going our runway. So it's not 18 months instead. it's like, okay, we're going to be diligent. And now this is going to last, we got to make this last three years instead of 18 months. Definitely. Yes. All of the kind of shifting dynamics on the timelines are really important because if you raised in the last, if you raised in the first quarter of 2022, you raised at very high valuations probably and really decent round sizes. But if you were thinking ahead, you could probably see, hey, something isn't quite right here. Like the public markets had already turned at that point and venture is sort of like the tail on the dog. Like when the public markets turn, it's going to whip its way through venture, but it's going to take some time. There's lag. So you know, you might've gotten your fundraising and been like, all right, everyone, we're going to make this work for 36 months instead of the normal 24. So one of the things that I do think, and I've said a lot that Austin, I think is really well suited for is our sector mix. You know, we've talked about, I think one of the superpowers of Austin, I, I call it, we leverage the power of and, and what I mean is we have a whole lot of different technologies and industries here. We've got CPG, we've got life science, we've got clean tech, we've got 
enterprise. We've got electric vehicles. We've got rockets, you know, semiconductors. It keeps going. And that convergence creates all sorts of new opportunities. So that's my observation and kind of anecdotal from seeing on the ground from a fundraising perspective and what you're seeing, am I right? Are we similar to other regions? Are we an outlier? What, what is it you're seeing? Yeah, I think Austin has a good mix of different types of industries that get funding. You know, if we look at it from Carta data for the first half of 2023, it's, you know, about 25%, 26% B2B SaaS. There's a little bit of biotech, there's energy startups, there's a good, a healthy dose of hardware startups, consumers in there, fintechs in there. It's a pretty, you know, healthy, balanced mix, which contrasts pretty widely to certain other ecosystems that are not the Bay Area. So the Bay Area has lots of everything, mostly. Uh, you can you can find all sorts of dips and types of startup companies across the board there. Places that are a little bit more specialized, I'm thinking specifically of Boston here, which is sort of made itself the home of biotech in a way that San Diego has is kind of there as well. Those places seem to have more anchor industries. It doesn't show in this data set, but Los Angeles also kind of has an anchor industry in consumer tech. And it's sort of a different strategy, or I'm not even sure if it was necessarily strategic and more just kind of out of happenstance. Uh, but some of these places have very set industries that are the the sort of progenitor of all the rest of the startup information that goes on there. And some ecosystems just have a little bit of everything. Austin seems to be more of an ecosystem that has a little bit of everything. I, I think looking at that, we talk about things that we can learn and, and learn from other superstar ecosystems that a little bit of everything and that non-dominance probably sets us up well for success over time. Because my theory is, and I'd love to hear it, is that when you have individual sector winters or recessions, you can have talent movement within this within the city, within the region, you can have venture movement. And it's not that, you know, you have the the Rust Belt scenario, right? Where it's like, okay, this one sector moved and oh, that's it. The the ball game's over. Definitely it helps to have a diversified ecosystem in terms of startup sectors and industries. There are some advantages of doubling down on an anchor industry, particularly because of the way that you can, if I'm being candid, it's easier marketing. You know, like Boston is where the biotech lives because we have all of these wonderful universities and it's just, you know, we are a science forward place and all this kind of stuff. That's great for them. And, and if you've chosen something like biotech or, you know, pharma, et cetera, I don't think that the demand for those things is going to go down anytime soon. But if you were to be predicated, for instance, on energy startups, which we see a lot of in Seattle and other places, and Denver occasionally, those can fluctuate really greatly by investor sentiment, et cetera. And then you can just have, you can have years where not a lot happens. Yeah, no. And I think it depends on what the, you said what the marketing is. I, I think more and more, at least from my perspective, the marketing for Austin is the convergence. And so then it becomes the the everything, but it, they're not siloed. And I think that it, the more that we can mix and match these things across these industries and these, you look at our unicorns, many of them are things that are this plus that, then that becomes the marketing and that becomes what makes it unique. 
And how do you feel as a, as a, you know, fairly recent or last five years or so resident of Austin, do you feel the influx of Californians coming in there? I mean, we read all the business insider headlines about all that kind of stuff. Is it, is it changing the ecosystem? <laughs> yes. Right? And me being one of the Californians who came in. So, so yeah, I think that we're, we're going through an inflection point. It's not the first inflection point. I think this is, you know, when we had Professor John Sidley Butler on the very first Austin X podcast, he called this the sixth wave. I think that when I look back at the history of Austin, my sense is there are two constants in Austin, change and complaining about change. <laughs> so right. it comes to the, the fact that, because I think with what, what the dynamics though is, with that change though, is you have people who are, have been here for a while and with those situations changing, you need to, their dynamics change. Right. And some people step up and are able to do that. It's, it's interesting because the more I hear and see, you know, Michael Dell seemed to have been the unofficial ambassador because that seems to be hearing kind of was, you know, he was the one making these connections. I mean, there's a, there's a great story about a, a company here called Harbor Health that was founded by Clay Johnston, the former dean of the Dell Medical School. We had, we had him on the podcast. And uh, it was backed by 8VC, Joe Lonsdale's uh, firm. And on the American Optimist, uh, Joe Lonsdale podcast, they talked about that story of how it happened. And it happened at a dinner that Michael Dell put on of like 30 different people. So he would kind of, he's kind of that super connector of that level, right? But what I'm finding is that I think it was happening behind the scenes before. And now as it's more, it's now happening more in front of the scenes, right? He's kind of becoming more the official ambassador. Obviously, you have you like Matthew McConaughey and, and and all of those. So you're having these different dynamics and these different, you know, things that are changing. But I, I think that's always been true. And obviously, Bill Gurley just moved uh, or, or announced that he was here. I think he's been here for a little bit uh, and just been under the radar. And so I think things are changing. I think the flywheel is starting to get even faster. But I think there's there's integration that's happening, right? Like, People are working together. People are, you know, you have old, I don't even want to call it old Austin, but like, you know, people who've been here for 20 years, connecting with people who've just come. One of the things that, you know, I said, I've been here for two years. And what has been amazing to me is the number of people who have brought me in. I mean, I, I know more people here than I did it in 15 years in San Diego. And I think that has to do with the culture of Austin. Yeah, that's fantastic it's a dynamic and, and great place. And I think that's one of the things that's going to make it interesting and different. It's not, the elbows aren't out, right? I mean, I think the, the Michael Dell, you know, the name of his book is that you'll play nice and win, right? Like you can do both. And that, that's kind of the culture of Austin. I think that's, you know, one of the other parts, the superpowers of it. And one of the things that makes it distinct in the first Austin and not the next Silicon Valley, which I think becomes a great place for us to kind of wrap up on because, you know, Peter, we always like to end on the, the same question. So Peter Walker, What's next, Austin? <laughs> more California, right? Oh. <laughs> just more and more transplants coming in. I think I think you actually just kind of hit the nail on the head. There is a venture, uh, and we see this across our data. If you look at the most recent big report that we put out for Q2 just across the U.S., it used to be that the West, the West Census region in America, took up about... 62% of all the VC investment we were seeing on Carta. 
That was in 2018 or so. In the most recent quarter, the West took 44% of every dollar. That is a big, big shift. And the biggest gainer in that time, the Northeast has been you know, consistently about a third of investment, but the South, including Austin, has risen from 12% to 20%. It is the growing ecosystem of where venture capitals go in the US. And I know the South can contain more than Austin, but when you look at the Southern VC ecosystem, Austin is the like queen king of that region. So I think Austin has this growing sense. It, I don't get the sense that it needs to prove itself anymore, quote unquote, as a great place for venture capital and startups. Now what it has to do is double down on some of the deepening things that happen in places like the Bay and elsewhere. So you're talking about like, what factors go into this sort of ecosystem growth? There's university talent that has to be there. There's a solid set of angel investors who are seasoned and willing to make risky bets. There's what you just spoke about in terms of who are the super connectors in this thing? Who are hosting the dinners that introduce founders to investors? Who cares about that stuff? But I think the the last piece, which was a little bit out of SF, but it's now coming back, and it seems as though it's really clear in Austin, is just, is there enough density of interesting people who are excited about hard problems that want to get together and talk nerdy stuff to each other? At some point, like that's what an ecosystem really is, is that all these, you know, you see it in Hayes Valley here in San Francisco, where there's just a, pe- a bunch of people, they may be founders or just technologists, and they'll they'll go talk to about gen AI in coffee shops for three hours and just like learn about cool new ideas. Not because they want to build a business out of it, just because they're super jazzed on the ideas. And I think that's the place that Austin's at now, where that's like the last bit of the ecosystem. When you turn around and you say, there's so much new stuff happening here. Fantastic. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher. Leave us a review and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.